Arc Reactions Podcast. My name is John. My name is Dylan. And this is episode 138 covering Saga, the first six issues. If you're new to the show, we'll be talking about things we didn't like, followed by things we did like, and finally giving the comic an overall rating. But first, we'll take a trip down Education Alley and talk about some of the references and vocabulary words used in the work. So Dylan, why don't you go ahead? So the issue five, we have miscogenerators, which is uh, talking about the two uh, protagonists, and that is the interpreting of people considered to be of different racial types. In in this book, it's literally different racial types. But I was going to say, in this one, it, it is the fact. It's like uh, like the joke that I've heard people say, and, and it's just to make people think is like, well, unless you uh, you know mate with an alien, it's not interracial. And I'm well, like, well, in this case, it, it is. Yeah, but, but it, it, miscogeneration has a long and horrid history of... You know, being used to, you know, one could easily point to American slavery era and even more recent, uh, hell, even in modern, you know, the interpreting of people of a African or Afro-Caribbean origin and people of Caucasian origin in some circles is still seen as interpreting a people of different racial types. It's really disgusting, but that's American history for you. Yeah, it, well, it's not limited to us. Oh, I mean, no, It happens course. other places in the world as well, and it's stupid. Yeah. That's all I'm going to say about that. <laughs> all, right. all right, let's move on to the, the talking points here. And did you have anything bad to say about this work? I, I really don't. Um, I, I don't either. It It's very well put together, and it. the first thing I wanted to highlight was the pacing. Like, Oh, my God, so good. Like, the first issue is double-sized, and I had forgotten that until I was like reading up about the story outside of reading it because it didn't feel like a double-sized issue. It didn't feel like an exposition dump or a setting dump. Like You're slowly introduced to information about the characters, about the setting, about the, the various worlds in this universe, um, as well as the exposition of you know the story. Like You're not given this whole dump right at the beginning. You, know, you don't get the Star Wars crawl. You know, not that that's a huge exposition dump, but you don't get something like that. You're just immediately introduced to the characters, what they're doing, and then slowly you're fed the parts, the important parts of the story to keep your interest. I mean, and and it just it flows so well. And when you get to the end of one issue, you it, it, you want to open the next issue. In you, fact, yeah, the cliffhangers are well, they're they're not necessarily cliffhangers for the most part, but the little bit of information at the end of each episode that leads you into the crux of the following issue. Yeah, it makes you just want to keep reading. And now that it's on a hiatus, I don't want to get to the point where I'm caught up because then there's no more to read. <laughs> I know. I'm, I'm so so uh, reticent to get to that point because it's like I'll start jonesing real bad. But, I mean, everything about this is just it, it flows so good. And, and Fiona Staples and Brian K. Vaughn just – they just killed it. Like there's nothing more that can be said except they killed it with this. And the pacing is so fluid. And at no point does it, when it cuts away to a different character, does it feel like an interruption when it transitions between the will and Marco and Alana and Hazel and, uh, the Prince. robot guy. Yeah. Is it four or IV? I, I say think four. it's four. I say four. Cause the other one was 32 in Roman numerals. So yeah. the guy that got killed, uh, early on in the story. So I'm assuming they're numbers. Yeah. But the first time I read it and somebody said, uh, his wife, I guess, said IV. I'm like, I read it as IV or IV. And then it, it dawned on me later. Oh, it, that was probably four. <laughs> so. Yeah. Um, it's just everything is so good. Yeah. Well, let's let's talk about the characters then. So you've got kind of the three groups here that are four groups, I guess. We're, we're not really introduced to more of Marco's people until later, I, I take it. Because most of the ones we see die like immediately, um, but you've got Marco, who's the horned people, uh, the Moonies they're called, which I'm sure is derogatory. But yeah, um, do we get their race? Or I mean, the, the, I don't think that they were given the exact name. Or if we did, I just missed it. Yeah, I, but same. I mean, you know, the the Moon people. Yeah, the people on Wreath. Yeah, moon. Wreath, and then Landfall. Yeah, yeah. So Wreathians. Yeah. The Wreathians, the we really only get to know Marco. And then at the very end of this this section, we meet his parents. Yes. Um, so Marco and Alana, who's a uh, uh, free land, landfall, landfaller, landfall. 
um, th- those are like the main protagonists of the story as well as their daughter who's narrating the story, but is just an infant at this point. So yeah, Hazel. We, we don't really get much of her yet, but I'm sure that's coming as the story progresses. Before, before we go in any further, I want to talk about Alana and Marco. As, yeah, that's, that's the section. Yeah, they are so human. They have flaws. They have misgivings. They are so well-developed in just a short period. You get such a feel for them. Well, I mean, obviously, they're them and Hazel are the main protagonists of the story, but at this point, Hazel's not really able to do much other than narrate. So they are the protagonists of this story at this point. And yeah, like, I was... It seemed very real, the things that they were arguing about or learning about each other or frustrated with each other about, like... I read somewhere uh, that Brian K. K. Vaughn, this was a combination of like his childhood um, fantasies about you know science fiction and such, and writing a story about being a parent. And it's immediately evident once you know that reading through the f- this first six issues, how much of this is about being a parent or being in a relationship and having these big. Uh, events happen, you know, like having a child or getting married and such. And the things that you learn about your partner that you're like, how, wait, how, how did we not, how did this not come up already? Like, how are we just now learning about this? And like, it, it almost feels like he's writing from experience, but he could just be fabricating this. And it's just so well done. Well, I mean, like if, if you read the postscripts on a few of them, he talks about this and it's, it's, as he said, it's, you know, how do you choose a school? All these things about parenting itself is kind of boring. So how do you how do you pull from those experiences and still tell a really captivating story? And, I mean, this is how. Throw them in space and throw them against the world. Yeah, I mean, us against the world is, you know, one of those common uh, tropes. Not tropes, like... Devices. Main, main, yeah, main storytelling devices. You know, it's like uh, man versus nature, man versus man, man versus himself. So this is kind of us versus, or this is a, some combination of man versus man, I guess. Yeah. Uh, you know, but yeah, you, you start with that and you start with like really nuanced characters and you you can hook readers as we saw if you, like you said, you're reading the letters column at the end of the end of the issues and how many people are were got issue one early on? Like, I mean, we're coming to this pretty late. Obviously, there was a bunch of issues when you started reading it, and this is when I'm starting reading it. So there's 54 issues, so I'm way late to the party. And this was, you know, 2012 when this came out. Yeah. So, um, you know, the, there's a lot of people who caught it issue one, and I'm sure it was the character work that hooked them and got them to, like, you know, continue to buy it issue after issue and write in. You know, those early letters columns are usually pretty sparse and there seemed to be a lot of people writing it and physically writing in like this didn't have an email address that you could email in 2012 like you had to write a letter or print out a letter and mail it which making people go through that extra step you cut back on so much stuff because people just aren't going to go out of their way even if it's something they like you know but if it's something they love they will and i mean even early on they were talking about you know the cosplay aspect and how like there's so many the Will cosplays, Alana, Marco, you know, there's all these characters who get so much, you know, love. And ju- the fact that they, you know, the the groundswell for this, this is an image comic. It's not one of the big two. It's not, you know, a, a, a piece that got so much publicity or tie-ins or advertisement. It just, everything is coming from the quality of the work. Yeah, I mean, obviously, there, there's a couple factors in there that made it catch on a little better than, than some others. Like, Image is a known brand, you know, at this point. Like, as far as, like, the big two, it's it's not the big three quite yet, I would say, or but we're getting close. Well, I but, mean, this is back in 2012, too. Yeah, so yeah even also, then. It's, yeah, it's grown even since 2012. I mean, with the help of books like this and The Walking Dead. You know, like, those are probably their two most well-known uh, properties. properties. And, yeah, so... It helps, you know, being the next biggest non-big two, and it also helps having Brian K. Vaughn's name as- attached to it because a lot of people did like Why the Last Man that he wrote before this. So, which I want to cover still. I do too, and I have uh, the first trade somewhere, um, so we should probably cover that at some point. Um, but like, yeah, the even if this wasn't that name, 
to draw people in, the word of mouth would have got people to this, maybe not as quickly, but definitely would have because this is phenomenally well written. Exactly. So, but yeah, to, moving on to the freelancers, speaking of the will, the, the, the people, the people, <laughs> the freelancers, they all start with the, it's like yeah. a title. It's, I, it's I, weird. I, yeah. But I kind of assume that's just part of the gig, which I love. It just adds this weird nuance to the whole freelancer thing. Yeah. And but, then, well, I mean, we're really only interested to two at this point. I'm assuming more will show up later at some point, but the, the spider lady, the stock, the stock. It? And and the will, and obviously the will is still alive at the end of this, so he's probably the one we're going to focus on more. Uh, but man, the stock was an interesting character. Oh yeah, she's extremely creepy. Oh, very much so. I mean, yeah, you know, it's a. Uh, oh, what what are they uh, in D and D? The Drow worship them. I don't know. Oh, dang it. They're, they're, uh... I think I've been told because I'm playing a Drow in a campaign right now, but I can't remember the the name. But yeah, like. All those eyes, all those extra hands. I'm like, man, a spider person would be a really good like bounty hunter or assassin or whatever these people actually are. They they kind of strike me as bounty hunters. Yeah, drider. It's a drider, which is I, I couldn't come with that. Yeah, uh, that's in D and D. That's the drow. You know, they they have driders, which are very much what the stock is. It's the spider woman. But yeah, no, I mean they the phenomenal. I mean the character design. You know the the. Multiple arms, the the human torso, the spidery eyes. It's like, oh my god, this is unsettling. The the lack of arms because she has the spider body. I mean, all her legs are kind of arms. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, like n- no. Uh, well, she did have a bit of a torso, and oh, then, she definitely has a human human torso. Yeah, and then uh, the big old round piece that that the back of the stinging spiders have, um, like Shelob and. In uh, Lord of the Rings, yeah, yep, yeah. you know that—that's where I went to with that. It was like, <laughs> oh, it's like a, a talking animated Shelob. Like <laughs> this is really creepy. <laughs> I mean, and and the fact that you know she has a history with the Will, and you know they have an intimate history, and the fact that Prince I Prince Four Prince Robot Four Prince Robot Four kills her and you know the will swears vengeance like ooh, <laughs> there's some history here and, and this- honestly i would have liked that character to stay alive because i was enjoying this like his pettiness about her like because these kind of strike me as a combination of like uh james bond type spies but also bounty hunters and assassins and so this like pettiness of this james person that you you Boba. have feelings for sleeping with somebody else as part of whatever mission she's on. And then, like, they were just starting to maybe work something out there, and then she gets killed by Prince Robot the Fourth, Yeah. Or Robot Four. Um, and so, yeah, I'm interested in the revenge aspect, but also I still... I would have been interested in seeing where their, like, back and forth, you know, uh, contentious relationship would have gone well, further. And and this, this speaks into the development of the characters that... These are characters with histories, and you aren't necessarily told the whole story, but they exist before the you know issue one, and you they feel like fully fleshed out. They don't feel like they're birthed new into this world. Right. It doesn't feel like the writer's just coming up with this stuff on the fly. It feels like you know he's got a backstory to these characters, but also I don't want that. Like I don't need it. Like I just need the pieces that are relevant to the story you're telling, and, and that's something that is very difficult for. Uh, a lot of authors to do is figure out exactly what elements of information does the reader actually need to make them understand what's going on, not be confused and be intrigued and have an air of mystery. And like he nails it with these characters specifically. Oh yeah. And, and you know, the fact that I like the will is the type of character I'd love to play in, in a space setting game. You just want a lion cat. I mean, I do want the lion cat, and which I, we have to talk about the lion cat is just this amazing character in and of itself. It only has one line I th- or two. I'm trying to figure out what, like, he calls it a partner, but to me it's like a, a walking truth detector. I mean, it is. <laughs> I mean, we'll have to see because obviously I, this character continues on past where, where we've read, so I, maybe the lion cat gets more developed as, as things go on. So we'll have I, to see. I love Lank. I love the fact that it's a naked cat. I love the fact that it's creepy looking. I love the fact that it's 
you know, it, it, it there, there's things that I can't talk about yet, having read ahead. How far did you get, by the way? I don't remember. I think I got into like the 20s or 30s. Okay. So about half yeah. of what's out now. But uh, yeah, I'm excited for you to see the Lion Cat. Um, and then the robot people and the bureaucracy and... So I obviously at this point, and feel free to spoil or not spoil this, are they running Landfall? I don't think they're running Landfall. Because they seem like the, the, the seem, they're a royal, royal class to these winged people, which the wings all seem different on them. That may be another well, They're discussion. not a royal class to the winged people. They're their own people. And this, okay. this feeds into the whole proxy war thing, that they are on the side of the winged people. Okay, that makes more sense. So they, are, they were picked up when they took the war away from Landfall and Wreath. They joined the side of Landfall. Yes. Okay. All and right, that's they're their sense. own hierarchy and bureaucracy. But, you know, the Prince Robot, or Robot, yeah, Prince Robot the Fourth, uh, or Prince Robot Four. I, I, I was saying the Fourth in my head, but I'm not sure. Yeah, well, I mean, it's interesting because usually when you see that, it, it's a the Fourth. Yeah, I, I'm thinking, we, we know he has a dad who's called King. Is he King Robot Three? Uh, you know? Because that would make sense to me. You know, Robot is like the name, and then, you know, the king is the third. The prince is the fourth. When he becomes king, he becomes king robot the fourth. Yeah, that makes sense to me. But, you know, you have this whole bureaucracy where the the prince is someone who survived a ambush attack. And that's still haunting. And we're still seeing shades of PTSD with that. Yeah, the the flashes of of uh, pictures on the, the face, uh, the, the CRT monitor head of the robots was pretty cool. I, I like that. It reminds me a lot of a uh, a webcomic that predates this, I think, by a little bit, called Rice Boy. And one of the characters is a very similar design of a human humanoid robot with a robot or a, a tele- CRT monitor head, and it flashes images and what have you. So I wonder if that might be inspiration. But uh, yeah, the uh, the fact that he's suffering from PTSD from the attack and is really intriguing. The fact that his wife is pregnant and he is forbidden from going back to the kingdom until he completes his mission after already having gone through a very traumatic experience. Well, he was out, like, or he said he was out. So, like, he'd completed whatever, like, if they have conscripted military service, you know, like, everybody has to do, like, South Korea, you know, everyone has to do a couple years. And maybe he just completed that because he said he was out. And then he got called back in for this. And yeah, like th- that that was the part that was, I guess, was most confusing me about where the robot people fit in because it's like he's a prince, but he's being Ordered forcibly around. withheld from going home until he completes this mission. Well, I mean, it, it, and given, you know, this is back in 2012 when this came out, does that not remind you of the stopgap era of the the military that we went through? Oh, yeah. I mean, I wasn't hit by that, but I know people who were. Yeah. I mean, you know, just to, to kind of make the, which I'm going to be doing a lot of tying it to uh, to real world stuff, but yeah, it's very reminiscent of the stopgap stuff the army went through where soldiers were forcibly extended, you know, their contract forcibly extended without their consent because whatever reason, the military had to continue its war. So, you know, the, the prince is going through a similar thing where he, he's completed a tour of duty. He has suffered and lost good men. He's seen traumatic events, and still he has to continue in the in this uh, this war. Yeah, I mean, we'll have to. I'll have to see when I read further. I know you have that. If that more of that is talked about, because yeah, I wasn't quite putting that together, but because that was one of those minor details that I just kind of like, oh yeah, he's that that's not important on why it's he's out here away from his wife and trying to chase down our our main people so you know from this faction and then obviously the um reethers were trying to catch them as well for their purposes and then the uh winged people from landfall were trying to catch them as well so it's like everyone was after these people kind of the us versus the world or the universe in this case and so i just took it as oh well this is the person from the robot side that they're sending and that's kind of the point we're supposed to be focusing on. But there's also this sub layer of, yeah, I thought I was done with this and now I'm back at it. 
So yeah, that uh, I'd be curious if that's touched on more later. If not, it it's okay if it's not. Yeah, but it's still something that's very interesting that it's so well tied. So uh, next thing I want to talk about was you know kind of l- going into the same type of topic is the uh, the discussion of the proxy war, and I mean this is the outsourcing of the so you have these two factions from a moon and a planet. If either one destroys the other. You know their orbit's completely screwed. They'll go spiraling out into space. Right. Yeah. And so instead, they proxy these wars out. Now, clearly, they're they're a wealthy enough. Each one is wealthy enough to be able to have these proxy wars. So I I took it as okay. So th- what this reminded me of, and obviously not at all the same, is there's uh, I believe it's original series Star Trek where they go to this planet and. There's these two warring sides, and they've been warring for generations. And a, a computer says, oh, there's 74 casualties on your side. So 74 people go walk into basically a suicide booth and die because the computer says your side has lost this many people. So they were simulating battle. But they rather than like destroy their world, they chose to simulate the battle to keep the battle going but not destroy the physical space that they were all living in. Now, obviously, this isn't quite like that because... They just decided to take their fighting elsewhere. And then, like, the the comic said, other worlds had a choice. Join the winged side or the horned side. And then, so they sort of picked up allies along the way. But the way I understood that being is they were still their own forces fighting, just not on their home turfs. And then they augmented with other uh, cultures. Well, it's more, from my understanding of it, is, yeah, I mean, yeah, you have... Obviously, you know, soldiers from the home bases on either side, but still it's fought on other people's land and other people's territory. And, you know, the, you have these long, they're given the option, join the wing or join the horn side. They're not given an option, don't participate in this war that has nothing to do with you. They're, you know, it's choose a side. Uh, I mean, Obviously, it's not the focus of the story at the point that we're reading right now, but I would be curious if they ever ran across a world that's like, no, we're fighting both of you off. Get out of here. You know? Yeah. And like, that would throw an interesting wrench into... I mean, you know, once again, I'm going to tie this to real-world politics because, well, that's what I do. Iraq. It, it, during the American invasion of Iraq, they were... Uh, are we talking uh, recently or uh, the Gulf War? Uh, recently. Okay. They were the Iraqi people were fighting off a lot of factions were fighting both uh, Americans and the Irani influence. So you had factions who were saying, "No, we will not be. We are our own country. We're our own people. So we're going to fight off both sides." Well, and we saw a little bit of that. I know you wanted to bring up the um, what did they call them? I forget the. It was an R something like or horrors the horrors. Oh yeah, yeah. Which turned out to be ghosts on this planet uh that they were on cleave i think yeah, it was called yeah. I- isabel yeah isabel's cleave. the one that that we get most get to know best because she joins the the parents and and the daughter but it's this whole anyone who died on this planet becomes a ghost on the planet was kind of how i interpreted what she was saying and she mentioned that her parents were freedom fighters or resistance however you want to uh Think about it. Uh, obviously, that's how the warring factions thought about it was resistance, and they thought well, about it as freedom fighters because, hey, you're fighting on our planet and killing our people. We're, we yeah. don't want this. Well, and, you know, it, I don't want to get too far ahead. I want to talk about that. That does tie in, so I'll talk about that real quick. Isabel st- uh, died by stepping on a landmine. Now, I don't know if you are familiar with it, but on our own home planet here, there's landmines are basically considered a war crime. And you have massive organizations trying to clear these landmines, especially in places like Africa, where they've been used, you know, by different places. By when you know Germany invaded them during World War II, when America invaded, et cetera, et cetera. So you have so many different casualties of of just civilians who step on these landmines because they're they're uh, hidden, you know, they're buried. So it's a horrible and thing. And they're not marked because that would defeat the purpose. Yeah, but but I mean the fact that they're a, a, a someone comes in, they put these landmines down, they don't go back and clear them out after they're done, after you know they finish whatever they came to do. So 
you know, the, the use of landmines is basically a we don't. It, it's it's almost like salting the earth. It's like we don't care about anything. The the long term effects of these things. Now, this has been a practice for many, 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 many wars. I mean, at least yeah. back to World War Two. I don't know, maybe World War One. I'm not sure. Um, and obviously, technology has improved a lot since then. Do you think we're at the, not that I'm advocating the use of landmines, but I'm saying, do you think we're at the point now where, say, we wanted to fortify some place that we're at, and we put a field of landmines around the camp or whatever, like, are we to the point where through GPS and uh, satellite imagery and such that we could effectively track where they are, and then when we're done, go safely remove them? I, I think conceivably yeah but logistically no because that's more man hours now let's assume that a a nation unnamed invades another nation they fortify their position with landmines as you know and we've discussed this in the past i don't remember what comic book we were talking about but the othering of the enemy you know you, a number of times a number of times yeah. we talked about this especially us both being veterans both having deployed to you know foreign nations after it takes, assuming that that nation A leaves on their own accord, that's men. That's the invading nation. The right? invading nation yeah. leaves on their own accord. They that's still that's man hours and time that they have to spend pulling up these landmines. Um, now assuming they don't leave on their own accord, you know they're chased out by the defending nation. Yeah, you know, they're not going to clean up landmines. They're not going to go back. Yeah. I mean, I, I understand. I'm just thinking of like conceivably, if you, yeah. if you wanted to ethically use landmines, which I mean, basically, there's no because the, the nature of landmines, there's no ethical way. And, and considering that the whole idea is that they're untraceable until they're detonated, you don't want them to be traceable by, uh, say, metal detectors. You don't want to be traceable by any means that would allow the opposing force to detect them and disarm them or turn them against you. Yeah, I mean, that that's fair. And, I'm just thinking about, like... And then there's, of course, yeah. you know, we saw it a lot in Iraq, the use of improvised explosive devices, you know, which act as landmines, but things like the explosively formed projectile, which are so much harder to detect because they're not traditional landmines. They're designed, ironically, in a very low-tech way. I was going to say they're MacGyvered. Yeah, they're MacGyvered. So you have this very low-tech, and it's, it's a... Uh, we're so... You know, trying to detect the high tech stuff, we can't detect the you know coffee, the steel coffee can placed upside down over a bunch of explosives that basically turn that that top of it into a molten rocket that shoots up. Yeah, I mean, there's so many things that look like that. You could spend all day like trying to safeguard against something like that. Exactly. When when you were deployed, did your base or nearby have any kind of landmine like lost landmine fields? Um, I mean, I'm trying to think, mind you, this is many, many moons ago. I, I don't know that we did. Cause the base that I was at, there was, cause I remember driving around it to go to, I don't remember if it was like, a one of the staging areas to leave the base or something. I just remember that driving around this like big square field and the reason that no one drove across it was because there's, you know, unexploded landmines in the field. I mean, even not talking landmines, unexploded ordnance is a like uh, on military bases, you know, in the artillery uh, training fields or firing fields, they have unexploded ordnance that they have to, you know, kind of track and dispose of or just no one goes there. Well, and they've developed tools, I think, to help with that, like things that can remotely set them off or not necessarily remotely, but, you know, from a safer distance. Yeah, EOD, Explosive Ordnance Disposal. But like you were just saying earlier when I was talking about potential ethical uses of landmines, it takes time and equipment to do that. So that that landmine field was considered very low priority, apparently, because it was no one was doing anything about it. Exactly. So... You know, but if you have a whole bunch of, you know, civilians or you don't have that delineation, you could have any number of civilians who accidentally step on landmine. That's a huge thing. Like I said, in Africa, it's a huge injury they have is landmines. So it's a horrifying, you know, there's a reason that they're basically considered a war crime now. 
Okay, now that we've uh, discussed but, that part, oh no, I we're think so now, you wanted to get back to something else. Yeah, so I mean, well, what I want to mention is the outsourcing of wars by you know wealthier nation or, or the effective proxy war is well documented throughout history. I mean, you could point to any number of these wars that are perpetrated, especially by the United States and especially in South America. Um, one could point to the Banana Wars, uh, Chiquita, where... Uh, they, because of banana consumption in America, they the forces that be in a South African nation. I think I want to say it was Colombia, but South I America or South America. Yeah, sorry, uh, South America. I think it was Colombia. That's Central America, though. But I can't recall. No, which, I'm pretty or, sure Colombia is South America. Yeah, you're right. You're right. I think it was Colombia. I might be mistaken. I might be misremembering. Um, but you, you had these. Or co- another example is Coca-Cola and the horrible atrocities they've done. But you had uh, the workers, indigenous, mostly indigenous people, going on strike because of horrible working conditions. And in order to keep up with the American consumption of bananas, they, uh, the powers that be in that nation just went and they started chopping. They cut off hands, cut off heads, performed war horrors because of demand in America. In other words, to try and get people back to work by intimidation. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, you know, there's a, this huge history, and it, it's extremely depressing, but it's also extremely important to know about. Well, and didn't something similar happen in the Cold War? You oh, know, yeah. with, um, like, the Cuban Missile Crisis wasn't Cuba being, like, supported by the Soviet Union, and yeah. then the um, Contra... Uh, Iran-Contra. Yeah. Yeah, Iran-Contra is a huge one. In South America, like what U.S. was bolstering one side and Soviet was bolstering the other, I think, or something like that. Yeah, the Iran-Contra was the Americans giving arms to death squads and under the Nixon administration in exchange, you know, for anti-Soviet forces, basically, or or to counter the Soviet forces. But, and you know, America has a long, long history once again, especially in South America, of propping up and supporting fascist regimes over democratically elected socialist leaders. We've even seen that now with uh, Bolivia and uh, Evo Morales. Well, and to bring it back to the book, it's not explicitly stated, at least in the first six issues, that that's how their outsourcing of the war went. But based on you know how things have gone on this planet, I wouldn't be surprised if something like that did occur where they managed to get a planet divided amongst the two factions and warring against each other for the purposes of the two people that aren't even there. Exactly. And and that's the the whole thing with these proxy wars is they're, they're horrifying because it's, you know, it's conscripting people into a war in which they have no stake or no reason to participate. Yeah. It's, it's awful. So, continuing the train of talking about awful things. Do we have to? Oh, yeah. Because this was such a good book. It, no, it, that's, the, that's the reason it's so good, though. And, and this goes back to our, you know, so many discussions, especially, you know, I'll, I'll point to the most prevalent one is V for Vendetta, where while we both love the book, the conversation was so important to have. And even if it is horrifying topics and, and depressing things, they're important things to know about and to discuss, because if you allow them to leave the the lexicon of conversation it you allow atrocities and horrors to uh transpire yeah i know yeah if you forget if you forget the lessons of history you're doomed to repeat them or something to that effect yeah so with that we're going to talk about uh, the will and se- the sex trafficking of refugees in issue four yeah yeah that was not good well it was i mean it was it but, was well handled but yeah. just the the concept is depressing and deplorable and and real and far too real. So, when the pimp brags that the sex workers are handpicked from camps across the galaxy, refugee mostly referring to the camps, this is something that's pulled straight from history, and namely the Korean War, in which the United States military used "quote unquote" regulated prostitution services in South Korea. This disgusting practice is often seen among disenfranchised people who do not have the means for repudiation of their tormentors. This is not uncommon in the United States against immigrants and minority communities that feel that going to a policing body would be more detrimental to them than the assault and exploitation. And this is true of any nation. As in EU and Europe, uh, a lot of these uh, refugees are 
horribly treated and abused, but they don't feel safe going to the police for good reason. You know, we've seen in America what happens when someone comes forward with a rape allegation and, you know, they're, they're basically their name is dragged through the mud until they get a trial. And usually the rapist gets hardly any time or punishment. And I know this is extremely depressing. I'm sorry, but this is extremely important to discuss, you know, especially this is in 2012. So this was, you know, I mean, wasn't. I, remind me what Coney was doing because this is the time of Coney. Do you you remember that? Yeah, Coney was a a African warlord who had this. Was it Children Armies? Was that? Oh yeah, deal. Okay. Children Armies. So not quite this, but just as bad. Um, but like that's what this kind of stuff reminds me of. Uh, thinking about this in the context of the time that it was uh, published and written. And what stuff was going on in uh, the public zeitgeist at the time is, you know, that was the Coney 2012, Stop Coney. Or, or yeah, he was, a, he was a genocidal maniac. He wanted to, quote-unquote, purify uh, the ethnic people in Uganda. So I'm not, not saying that this is a response to that, but it, it could be in just a... Well, I mean, but also this has been a problem for... Decades, obviously, you went yeah. back to the Korean War. That was what in the fifties. Yep, fifties, sixties. So, uh, um, maybe it's not referring to that, but that was the first thing that came to mind at the time that this was being written as something that he could be talking out against the author. Or you know, you have uh, you know uh, undocumented immigrants who are just trying to survive. They get you know work, whatever means of work they get. If they're sexually assaulted. Who can they go to the police? Not really. I mean, it was a recent thing where the I won't say it was the FBI set up fake college uh, that was specifically aimed towards helping undocumented immigrants get an education. That then registered took their money after they saved up enough to go to the college and get registered and uh, arrested them and deported them. That's that's crazy. Like. I know this is a problem. It's still a problem. And um, I know there's been talk of sanctuary cities. Like, are those places where people would be able to go to the police without fear of retribution? Or is it not that good of a sanctuary? I mean, it's, it, it isn't. It isn't. It's basically the concept is terrorist organizations like ICE can't go in and, you know, just do these massive raids, at least not sanctioned. Uh, so, it, in in theory, it's it's a protectorate for undocumented peoples who are just trying to you know survive. But e- even then, it's it, you can't stop ICE, you know, necessarily completely because they're a federal organization. So, it's it's basically they have unsanctioned raids instead, and and generally speaking, the yeah, the the people could try and go, but even then, you're still at risk of, you know, if you if you report a crime and you get registered in their database as someone who is an undocumented individual, then if if you know if the shifting winds of politics changes, you could be out. Oh yeah, I mean that's always a a risk, I guess. Um, it, is there? I mean, I, I forgive my ignorance here, but. Are those cities trying to help these people get documented? Uh, yes. I mean, they're, they're trying to help these people to generally trying to get them at least, you know, so, something where they can get documentation. But, I mean, the documentation process is extremely long and arduous. Yeah, which is – I'm sure there's some reason for it. I don't know that I necessarily agree with that reason. I probably don't, like, if I sat down and thought about it. But, like – it's so frustrating because I can understand I can understand both sides of it to an extent. I obviously side more with the help the people that need help no matter what. But I can also see like the fear the other side has about, well, if we just open our borders entirely and don't do anything, then we're letting anybody come in and they can crowd us. And, and, and it's like they're probably completely not likely scenarios 
but I can understand their concern, but they aren't doing enough in my opinion to make to make it to where the people that want to can go through the process and do it legally and yet also protect against the people who never would do that and are coming in to do whatever it is and they feel like they can't do it where they're at. Like, So, I mean, you have programs know. like DACA, but the, even, even the programs like DACA are under attack by misinformation. You know, the... The orange turd gibbon in office is, you know, screaming, oh, DACA is so bad and it's allowing all these. No, DACA, you have to have a clean record. If you have any criminal offense, you get your your status removed. They have to have, like, there's there's all these restrictions. But even even things that are, you know, to the degree in which well-regulated could be applied, they're still attacking. Yeah, that's the part that ir- that furiates me because it's like these people are going through all the rigmarole and extra effort that you deem necessary to weed out the the bad influencers and the bad apples and the deplorables or whatever you want to call these people that are maybe actually trying to cause trouble, but you're not letting the people that are that are going to be most upstanding citizens in this country because, you know, they, they recognize that this is not where I'm from. I want to be a good example of my people so that, you know, and, and, or just, I don't want to cause any trouble because I'm going to get kicked out if I, if, if I cause any trouble, like they're the most well-behaved people in anywhere. They chose to be here. They didn't, it's kind of like uh, when we had friends giving, you know, it's it's the family you choose, not the family you're given. Right, right. It's the they ch- they want to be here, whereas you know Americans are just born here. Yeah, it, w- complacency and um, well, that's not the word I'm looking privilege. for. Privilege. I mean, privilege works like um, yeah, privilege. I guess like just unappreciativeness of what you have because you've always had it versus you know achieving something and then valuing what you achieved if if that makes sense like they've sought out this because it's what they want versus they're born into it and they don't really appreciate what they have yeah and and, and yeah. but you know not to get too far off topic here what topic are we on yeah, i am uh, totally lost the uh exploitation of uh immigrant and undocumented and minority people for sex trade and sex trafficking and i mean this all it all ties back because everything i i want to say it was john oliver had a an no, no, it was some more news, I think. Some more news, which is a channel I highly recommend on YouTube. Um, discussing the, you know, the effect... Or, or was it Philosophy Tube? Dang it, there's so many great YouTube series out there. But one of those, it, it's discussing how every... You know, these problems all tie into each other. If you get rid of the issue of, you know, exploitation of undocumented laborers, then you can get rid of the the need for them to, you know, basically, if they are fairly compensated and not exploited, they can afford a better life and contribute to the economy. They're not forced to, you know, deal with the exploitation, not just the work exploitation, but the sex exploitation. It's just all these things kind of cascade back into each other, all these issues. And unless, unless we're willing to really have that discussion and break into the roots of problems and the causes of problems, we can't solve the the symptoms of these problems, which unfortunately the sex trafficking, uh, exploit, exploitive nature of these things is a, is a symptom of a huge, large problem. And we see that in here with these, you know, we have a refugee crisis basically uh, with these refugee camps, which apparently they're all over the system. I mean, that would make sense because they're battling all over the system. And I will say that if you are going to tackle a symptom, sex trafficking is probably a pretty good one to tackle. Oh, no, definitely. But And you also have to be very mindful of, you know, you know, sex work is real work. Sex workers are workers. And there are people who choose that line of work, and they deserve all the protection and respect that any other worker gets. But the, also acknowledging the fact that 
you know, if you if you decriminalize legitimate sex work, decriminalize you know people who choose to go into that line of work, then you get rid of the 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 ability of exploitative sex work or sex trafficking, or at least reduce it drastically. Exactly, because I could see. I could see people still, the people perpetrating it, still trying to operate even if there's a legal alternative out there for people to uh, partake in, Be, just because they're those type of people. And But it, it's it's like, you know, when if you legalize it, then it's, you could go to an illicit one and risk all sorts of things, or you could go to a well-regulated, you Right, know. exactly. That's what I'm saying. Even though you have a legitimate avenue as a as a customer those people who are running the illegitimate ones are going to hang on for dear life as long as they possibly can because you're threatening their livelihood which is really hard for me to say that because it shouldn't be a livelihood of course uh but i can definitely see them fighting tooth and nail until there's no possible way that anyone would possibly go to or any service that they offer. I mean, you, you look at, uh, you know, in, here in Washington State, when marijuana was legalized, the amount of illegal marijuana sold was way less. You know? Yeah, I mean, I think that's probably the best example of of recent time of something showing, I mean, assuming you can get numbers, like, obviously it's hard to get numbers on illegal sales. But that would be the perfect example of, hey, when we legalize it and we do it, well, look at Colorado. Not yeah, don't yeah. look at Washington. Yeah, Colorado is a much better example because they did it way better than Washington did. Um, and uh, just from a t- one weekend a year visit that we have to Colorado, I could tell that. Like <laughs> yeah. without like having to go buy from any of the stores or anything, just looking around at what was available and and everything, they did it way better than than Washington. So look at Colorado as a better example. Yeah. I'm sure the illegal sales there are so minimal. Because the it's just so easy to do it legally, and it's not like it's priced you know ridiculously high or anything. So I mean, you know, not that we've we've checked or you know, I'm just that is completely not from experience. Because yeah, 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 I didn't go buy any just because it's not my thing. But I from I would have heard about it if it was <laughs> still priced like really badly. Like everyone would have been pointing to, see, legalizing it doesn't work because blah blah blah. But and, and there's so many more avenues to go down in that discussion. But yeah, so the the fact that you know the will is 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 you know it, it's it's this really big commentary in this comic about some things that are very big socio political issues, but they're they're couched in such a way that it's. If you want to delve into it, you can. If you don't, it's part of the story and it's part of the universe, and it still de- contributes to that universe. Yeah, and and the thing I particularly like, obviously you've read more than I have, um, is he's not letting this go, even though he wasn't able to solve it simply. Like he got given a number of how to help this one person, a ridiculously high number of basically like, well, pay me off, and he's like. That's more than my ship costs. Uh, yeah, he's like, uh, I can't do that. Uh, but I'm not just going to let this go. But also, he didn't solve it. And I think that's important, is that in order for it to be motivating and ring true and you know feel like, yeah, let's let's fight against that, you can't just win in one issue. Like It has to be a struggle. And I, and I appreciate that the author is going down that route, and I'm hoping that this character, the the little girl, um, keeps coming up as part of the plot going forward, and you're nodding your head, so probably it, it does. It, it's it's good. Okay, um, so I I definitely do appreciate that it was not solved in one issue, and be like, see, we can be better than that. Here's here here's a you know not at all plausible example, but see, we can be better. And I I think that would have hurt his argument to to do it that easily. Oh, yeah. It would have been a quick high for the reader, but not helpful yeah, it, for society. Exactly. Uh, the last thing I have to get off that topic, I know we've been talking about that for a hot minute here, is having a lot of breastfeed on the front page uh, or the front cover of the first issue is really bold, especially considering that this was in 2012 and there was this huge debate about women breastfeeding in public 
and it was like it's still this whole controversial thing but you know it, it's it's been a little more normalized but still a controversy that's that's an american thing yeah no it's 100% an american thing and and i'm i mean given all the uh, a vast majority of my perspective is an american one because well yeah, I, I'm. Uh, yes, mine as well. Obviously, I mean we've had that discussion. Uh, I think just the last issue we covered, right? Uber, where it's yeah. like uh, surprised slightly about a British perspective on World War II, and I'm like, oh, we don't really get that, you know, in our isolated Bubble. Americanism, yeah, uh, American situation. So I'm saying that not to belittle this, because yes, it is a problem here in America. We just need to get up to speed with the rest of the world and get over our prudishness about nudity in general. A hundred percent agree. But the fact that this was 2012 and they had a female character breastfeeding on the cover of the... That was amazing. That's so cool. You know, it, it, it's... I, I mean, I definitely applaud them for not shying succumbing away. to a recommendation because I was reading something about, you know, someone told them, hey probably not a good idea to put that on your cover for issue one it's also the cover for the trade by the way so like i applaud them for saying no we can do this tastefully like also it's it's also kind of a hey this is what's in this book like yeah don't hand this book to an eight-year-old dummy like yeah. this is meant for adults <laughs> I, it's very much it very much a adult graphic novel it's got depictions of violence it's got depiction of of nudity and sexual activity. And I mean, obviously we've talked about a lot of the, the topics just in the first trade of imperialism, proxy wars, sex trafficking. You know, th these are not, they're important issues to discuss and then have knowledge of. And, and it's something I think it would behoove us to start talking, you know, at the very least have these conversations and, you know, with young adults to let them know what the world really is. And, you know, try and bring about this change but over time you don't want yeah. to give them all at once and no, no, just no. send no them info onto a, a spiral of depression yeah. by, by how horrible the world no is. no you want to wait till like the mid-20s early 30s to start start that spiral of depression right let them come to it on their own yeah don't don't help because no. trust me you'll you'll find it in your own way we oh, all yeah. have <laughs> oh yes hooray adulthood <laughs> so, but i mean i i love the fact that they did not shy away from that and it, it's so cool that they're like, no, nah, we're just going to do this. We're, yeah, no, uh, about that, yeah, no, we're doing this. Yeah, you say we shouldn't do it, that's what we're going to do. Well, and, and that's where we talked about, you know, them publishing through Image earlier. Like, that's where something like that helps because my understanding of Image, and uh, this is by all by no means, like, personal experience or anything, I haven't published anything, but is that they are there to facilitate the owners of the work getting it out to the public and they have some sort of fee structure, I'm sure. And some sort of, or maybe some sort of like percentage or something that, that they take to f for their services, but they don't own anything. So it's whatever the creators bring to them and that is, and they own it however they, they see fit. So in this case, I think it's a 50, 50 split with uh, Brian K. Vaughn and Fiona Staples, like they both own this this product and it's whatever they say goes. Like yeah. no one's going to tell them you can't do this, you can't do that. Like, I mean, not in what we read here, but I did remember this when when I came across it again in my, my reading about the series. Issue 12 got uh, not posted to Comixology because of an issue that they had with it. And like they, they, they were, they didn't back down. They didn't take it out and be like, yeah, well, okay, well, we'll take that out so we can get it to as as many eyes as possible. No, they're just like, sorry, like you won't want to carry it. That too bad. We're just doing we're doing this. We we stand behind it. Um, and I mean, we can if we cover this again, we can obviously talk more about about that. But that's just another example of them being like, nope, we have faith in what we do. We have faith that it will find its audience, that people will read it, and you know that that we will get the sales that we need for this and from the right people. So we're not going to, to um, self-censor comp compromise uh, our vision just so that, you know, everyone's happy that public that can put it up for sale. And I was reading an interview, a more recent interview and just the way that Brian K. Vaughn talks about Fiona Staples work and how much he respects and allows, her, you know, the art to tell a story like 
there's an issue down the line that is largely textless. It's all storyboarded or, or you know, art telling the story. And that is so cool that, you know, they they have such a relationship in this in this working environment so much respect between the two of them it's just so, it's so cool it's so rad well what what really surprised me when i was reading about the story is that he basically hired her like sight unseen so to speak i mean obviously he he could see what she had done in the past but like he didn't know her he didn't know like if if like sharing this was going to be you know a collaborative or a, or a you know a uh, combative relationship. Like it's just amazing that they were able to come together so well to produce. As far as I know, to produce this this title and both of them be you know 100 percent behind it. You know and and it you know take. I, I'm so thankful it took off for them because you know it, it it it's a testament to you know ally yourself with with good people and good thing and produce good work and good things can happen. I, I won't lie. I spent at least an hour trying to find something, you know, some sort of scandal on Brian K. Vaughn just because it is so commonplace. I found nothing. And that's wonderful. I, and I'm so glad I found nothing. It, it's, it's depressing as hell that, that I felt the need to do that just because I wanted to make sure, you know, you, you hear about it all the time, unfortunately. And, and it just, Brian K. Vaughn and Fiona Staples both seem like really lovely people. He's definitely got a quirky sense of humor. Like yeah. I didn't uh, just for time's sake, I didn't read all of the letters columns in the first six issues, but I read a, a chunk of several of them. And he's got a really like my type. Like I'm, <laughs> I'm reading his responses. I'm like, that's something that I would say. <laughs> Very dry. Yeah, like his his witticisms strike me. Like it seems. Also, it seems like a 180 from the comic. Like, it's not there in the comic. It's like he, he writes something different than... than it, he's not just writing down what's in his head. Like, no. he's filtering it through these characters and writing these characters. And well, that's impressive because not a lot of... Not everyone can do that. Yeah, no, I mean, like... And and, uh, and it's like, man, he's, he's kind of like me. <laughs> I couldn't write this. <laughs> or could I? I mean, yeah, no, like... I, you, you have to appreciate when two people mesh so well and create such a cool work, and especially someone like you said, as quirky and weird as Brian K. Vaughn, in in a loving way. Brian, we know you're listening. We appreciate you. Just just know that we love you. We appreciate you, and we'd love to have you on the show. Please contact us. Of course, we would love to have any creators on the show. Yes, of course. Hopefully, we can see him next year at Denver. Ah, that'd be cool. Yeah, I don't know if he's going to be there, but that we'll have to check the yeah. schedule as they yeah. post. If we get a chance, that's one hundred percent. Yeah, go for it. Oh, I will. Yeah. I will be right there with you. Oh, I, of course. <laughs> All right. So I think we're going to have to go to rating. And John, I want to hear your rating on this one. Okay. Um, I need to read more of this to have <laughs> a context for it. But you know, I I try and keep up with with uh, a lot of the number ones and of just course. kind of see if there there are stories that interest me or that I think we might be worth talking about and i think this is one of those ones where i couldn't make a decision right away like because so sometimes i'll read a number one and i'll be like well let me read number two and see see what i think because i see something there but i'm not quite sure that's how i felt all through reading this <laughs> and that sounds like it's kind of negative but it's also amazing uh execution of a story because at a certain point if there's not something there, at a certain point, I'm either going to go, yeah, this is exactly something that I like that I want to come back to, or eh, it's not quite doing it for me, so I'm going to move on to something else because there's so many other options out there. But it kept me in that middle area for like three or four issues. And then right near the end, I'm like, okay, I'm on board. Uh, I would definitely read more of this. You, you, know, you know what I'm saying? Like, Oh, yeah. It, it's... It, it takes you a while to, to get into the world, but for me, that first issue just it got its hooks in hard. Yeah, so I guess what I'm saying is it took me a little longer to get the hooks in, but I, I'm almost in 100% in agreement with you. I mean, obviously, by contract, I have to be lower. <laughs> I've already used my one since thanks, since you forced me to on Uber. <laughs> um, so I'm going to say that this is an eight and a half uh, fuzzy robot heads out of out of ten. 
I thought we called a mulligan on uh, Uber. We'll see. We'll, we'll see, see how the rest of the year goes. Yeah. I, I reserve the right to have that be a mulligan if I choose to be higher than you at some <laughs> point in the future. Well, I mean, as, as I'm sure you could tell, not only do I love this book, not only do I love this series, I love the discussion. I love the fact that there's so many reflections into real-world things, which is always something that interests me and intrigues me. And it, the fact that I get to talk to it, talk about it extensively, well, you know. <laughs> Uh, so I, I love Saga. I, I just, I adore this book. I adore this series. I adore the characters. I adore everything about it. It's a 10 out of 10 for me. It's, it's 10 Sphinx lion cats out of 10. The fact that lion cat is a, a naked Sphinx and that it exists, is just, it's so good. I, I want more like lying. No, <laughs> that's all it ever says. Yeah, that's all it has. Well, it does. It does. What, it does make noises. Yeah. If, if you're not lying, it kind of. You know, scoffs or whatever. All right. You have something to add? Have something to say? Do we miss something? Have a story arc? Are you Brian K. Vaughn or Fiona Staples who just wants to talk to us? You can email us at arcreactionspod at gmail.com. Or you can uh, swing by our Facebook page and leave a like or a comment, facebook.com slash arcreactionspodcast. You can tweet at us at arcreactionspod. And you can tumble our way at arcreactionspodcast.tumblr.com. It's not a lie. You can find the show on Stitcher, Comic Podcast Network, Google Play, iTunes, and more. And a big thank you to Packy for our intro and outro music. We love that guy. And join us next week for our coverage of the Birds of Prey film. Woohoo! All right, the credits for this one are Saga 1 through 6, which ran from March to August 2012. Writer Brian K. Vaughn. And artist Fiona Staples. Thank you guys for listening. This has been a Cat Interrupted Production.